millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The Irish Rover, Pogue's frontman Shane McGowan, has died at the age of 65. In a tribute, President Michael D. Higgins described him as one of music's greatest lyricists. Um, but my love by the gasworks wall. Plus a week on from the Dublin riots, we reflect on the aftermath and the political fallout. You know, I, I have strong feelings on what happened uh, and I think the people responsible for the violence um, and the absolute thuggery on Thursday night, they need to be brought to justice. From summer in Tipperary to top of the pops, as frontman of the iconic Irish punk rock band The Pogues, Shane McGowan released seven albums, toured the world and scored a global chart-topping hit with the iconic fairy tale of New York. I kept them with me, babe. I put them with my own. Can't make it all alone. I built my dreams around. Well, in his 2021 book, A Furious Devotion, an unflinching portrait of Shane McGowan, biographer Richard Balls chronicled the singer's journey from outcast to national treasure. Well, I spoke with Richard shortly before we came on air tonight, and I started by asking him to tell us about the Shane that he knew. Well, uh, for somebody who wrote so many memorable words uh, in songs and, and, and whose lyrics stand as, as poetry on their own, he, he was actually a man of very few. Um, he was not much of a conversationalist. Uh, he, he didn't like being interviewed, um, particularly didn't like being asked questions about his, about his work and about his career. Um, and he really was probably most comfortable uh, in, in the company of, of friends and, and family just talking about, um, you know, the things that interested him. He wasn't at all interested in, in celebrity uh, or, or fame. Um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a shallow uh, individual. Um, you know, he was a man of, of real depth and, and I would say authenticity, really. Uh, so I suppose in writing his official biography, you drew on the stories um, from many people who were in and out of his life. A London uh, son born of emigrants. How much did that identity help forge his musical career? I mean, that did forge his identity in the sense that um, the Pogues really couldn't have come from, from Ireland because it, it, was, it was writing about the Irish experience, not of living in Ireland, but it was about that, uh, about people growing up um, sort of second generation Irish um, in London, like Shane was. I mean, he grew up 
um, in in Kent. He was born in in Tunbridge Wells. Um, he grew up in Kent. He he, he lived in a uh, the family lived in a, a sort of detached house in a cul-de-sac. Um, you know, watching Doctor Who and Top of the Pops and all the things that, that kids in in Britain in the seventies uh, or the sixties in this case were, were watching. And um, and then he had this these these visits to uh, to the, the the family homestead uh, in Tipperary. They'd come over on the ferry and and then be sort of welcomed into the bosom of the family of his mother's family in Tipperary. So in in a sense, he was kind of living these two lives. Um, we, and, 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 and that, for that reason, obviously, a lot of a lot of Irish people living in in Britain at that time did have that kind of conf conflicted identity. So uh, the prism through which Shane wrote his lyrics, uh, and so many of them are obviously about London, um, was was through being uh, you know living that Irish experience. Fame though did come at a cost, and Shane had his demons. He he led a, a typical rock and roll lifestyle, if you like, but one um, which was very much um, led to an extreme. How did his drink and his drug use impact on his career? Because he had that breakup with the Pogues. Um, it did not quite signal, though, the end of his career, because he went on and to be with the Popes and, 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 you know, forged his way and continued on. He was resilient in that regard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Shane was resilient in, in lots of ways. And in fact, the fact that he lived till 65, I think, you know, it, it was, was extraordinary, really. And, um, I mean, although Shane is sort of synonymous with, with drinking probably more, um, the drug use uh, after that time and during the time of the Popes um, really did impact on him uh, massively. And we know that he went through some incredibly um, dark times. And I think really creatively it did stunt his, um, his development in terms of what he went on to do, because really after the Pope's second album, which was about 1997, he didn't actually release any uh, original material. Of course, Fairy Tale of New York, Richard, is a song that most people will associate with Shane McGowan and with the Pogues that brought him um, a global audience and one that showcased his ability to tell a story. <clears throat> Shane's, um, I, I looked at Shane's school books because I, fa I found the teacher that um, taught him English um, at, at primary school. And in those books, I could see uh, the 10-year-old Shane's little stories that he wrote, little essays he did at school, I could see in them the kind of language um, that, that he used, you know, the vernacular uh, and, and that authenticity, that rawness. You could see that in his school books even back then. And so I think Fairy Tale of New York does so many things on so many levels, and it showcases his, his, his sense of poetry, it showcases his... Um, it, his ability to tell the story through the, through the eyes of, of emigrants. Um, Shane always had a, 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 was always an ambassador, really a crusader for the downtrodden. Um, we, we see that in other songs like the, the Old Main Drag, which is a much more difficult listen than, than, than fairy tale. Um, but that was what he was drawn to. He was drawn to people's frailties, people's uh, difficulties that they experience in life, and um, and fairy tale of New York is no kind of gaudy bauble on Pop's Christmas tree. I mean, it, it's a song of real substance. Richard Balds, uh, Richard, thank you for talking to us tonight and telling us more about the story um, of Shane McGowan and the memories you have with him. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Well, joining me now is arts journalist Pat Carty.
singer-songwriters Elner McAvoy and Mundy, plus live from Nina tonight in County Tipperary, we're joined by the owner of Shane McGowan's favourite pub, Philly Ryan. Uh, you're all very welcome along to the programme tonight, listening to what Richard had to say there, Pat, um, and all the tributes that have been paid mm. today. Uh, a poet, a punk, someone who lived a colourful, yet at times a very chaotic life. He was not someone you could easily put a label on. No, he wasn't, but I mean... I think, to reiterate what the president said today, he was one of the great songwriters. And I think that's what, you know, we, obviously there's the, there's the demons, as you mentioned there, when you were talking to Richard, but I think that's what he'd be remembered for. And um, I, I, I can quote maybe Bruce Springsteen was, was here on Irish television not that long ago and said something like, in a hundred years' time, well, lot of, most of us will be forgotten, but I think people will still be singing Shane's songs. And I think that's probably accurate. Yeah, and where the tributes have come from today, you know, reflects a lot of that. He mentioned Bruce Springsteen, mm. um, also Bob L Dylan, yeah, uh, spoken yeah. so much of him. And we heard from Nick Cave today, look, among many others. Um, and Elner, like as a young artist, you met Shane. And what impression did he leave on you as someone who was young, who was just starting out in your career. He was very interesting. I think that's, that's the main thing he was. I think all of the things that have been said already are very true, but he, he was very well read. Um, and it was funny when he was talking about the duality there because he, he was a bit of a slightly dual personality. The way he came across in interviews was not really the way he was. I mean, I'm sure you've found that as well. He, you know, he was very thoughtful. He was, um, he, he was very complimentary for what you were doing. Um, he kept his ears open, you know, about music that was out, you know, at, at that time he knew everything that was happening out there. Um, and I don't know, I think, he, I think he spoke the truth and he spoke the unvarnished truth. <laughs> um, so that when he, you know, did a Christmas song, it was without the tinsel. It was maybe not always the way Christmas songs are. It was, mm. you know, uh, uh, the kind of seedier side. And because he told was the truth, I think it identifies to his work as well. All, every song there's a darkness to, you know, Haunted, you know, Rainy Night in mm. Soho. All, they all have, they're beautiful, but they have a darkness. Yeah. Um, Monday for you, your first experience, because you duetted with him, you've been on stage with him plenty of times. Um, but your first experience was, and it was your first gig, wasn't it? Yeah. And Sing the pose. Hats, possibly, as well. We found out in the green room, I was actually at the same gig, and it was yeah. one of my first ones as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Because we have two awfully men here. In a little village <laughs> where my father's from called Shinron, there's a community hall, and the Pogues played there, and I was 14, and it was my first concert. And, uh, actually, and then the broad majestic Shannon Shane name checks that village in... The song. So anyway, that's uh, where I saw him first. Tell and us about that experience for you uh, as a 14-year-old. Well, so this, this small community hall, the Waterboys had done it, Arlo Guthrie, and it started, you know, these acts, a guy called Tom Stapleton was bringing all these great acts to the, the place. Anyway, I got to see uh, the Pogues and it was, it was chaotic. They were about an hour late. Shane, Shane's cousins owned the pub called Spain's across the road. I think he went in to meet all his relatives <laughs> and... I think the, the rumour has it that he bought around for everybody, but he didn't have the money and they, had to, they locked him in. So, you know, they had to go back to the community hall and rescue mm -hmm. him. But anyway, it was an amazing gig and uh, chaos. And 
people shifting the lot. It was just as yeah. you were, you know, sliding on beer and the whole lot. Like he was, he came on uh, with a big thing of grapes and he had a big black uh, fisherman's outfit. Like, uh, didn't he have a woolly hat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, it was like a pirate thing. Interesting as well because um, of how Shane was received in Ireland initially. And I, and I heard talk of, you know, when he was doing interviews on the Late Late Show and being interviewed by Gabo that, you know, it was quite critical maybe of, of Shane from the outset. And I suppose the wild man that was portrayed in yeah. London on the punk scene and all that went with that. Yeah. Um, but as a teenager, that's something you'd revel in. It's and quite attractive, yeah. yeah. It's quite attractive. I mean, I... I I have cousins in, in a place called Keenan in County Longford, and they had Rum Sodomy and The Lash, that album. And when I heard some of the cursing and the, um, you know, man getting kicked in the balls in, in, in uh, Leicester Square, and I was just like 13 going, this is amazing, you know? And I, then I started, you could, you could read the lyrics on the back. And I wasn't into poetry at all, but these things just hit me, and I could read it all the way down. Um, you know, the band played Waltz and Matilda, all yeah, these songs, yeah. I mean, and then you had Cora Reardon singing and she was a female, beautiful girl playing the bass and she had attitude and it's just another another level to our culture, but it had something else, which was the, the, um, the you know, the, the London Irish, I suppose. Yeah, that mix the of the, of the, mix of, of the punk with the poetry as well. I mean, how much, uh, for you, Eleanor, I suppose, did the musicality play into it or was it the lyrics? Was it the whole package um, with, with, that came with Shane with all the complexity? I think it that. was the whole package because I think the most interesting things to happen in music in you know, the last few decades have been fusions. They have, you know, everything's been done in every genre. So the only way you're going to get something is mixing this genre with that genre that wouldn't typically go together. And punk and Irish music did not go together mm -hmm. really? you know, prior to that. Yeah. I think the other thing that was very interesting about his writing was he, he, he had that slight distance from Ireland because he didn't live here. He wasn't born and bred here and lived here all the time. You know, he was Irish, but he spoke with an English accent. You know, he, he was a, a London boy with all of this Irish heritage. So he could probably see us slightly more clearly maybe than we could see yeah. ourselves, you know? You have to stand you have to stand back to see yourself or yeah. you have to go away to, yeah. you know, you, see you yourself. You go away, you come back and you see yeah. Ireland in a new light. Well, do you know what's interesting quickly is that I met him um, again through Sharon Shannon and we did a bunch of concerts together, but Desi O'Halloran, who's a singer from the Iron Islands, who was probably in his late 60s when Shane joined the Sharon group. And Desi was living in London and playing in the Irish clubs when Shane was a young lad, like at 10 or 11. And Shane was in awe of Desi because he hadn't seen him since he was a kid. And I'm in awe of Shane being in awe of Desi. And this is all in the dressing room and it's just amazing. You know? Incredible. Uh, you know. Let's talk now to uh, Philly Ryan, who we introduced you at the start of this conversation. Um, you're a publican in Nina in County Tipperary. Safe to say, Philly, you are you're resident in your bar tonight and it was like Shane's living room, would you say? It's where the sessions happened, where the get-togethers took place when he came home. Um, how are you remembering your friend Shane tonight? Sure, look, at he was um, part and parcel. This was his, his go-to place and, and he liked to come here, just switch off. At the time, he'd play a game of pool and drink a few pints, and he just wanted to be one of the locals. And and I think somebody said it earlier. He just didn't um, go for the for the the big scene. He just liked to be a normal guy coming into a normal pub and drink a few pints and and chat to the locals. You know, his first band, uh, the Nips, they got together. They kind of there was a reunion there some ten years ago, wasn't there? 
It did. They, they played a gig out the back here. It was fabulous. It was a great night. Um, Shane was in top form. Now, the music was different. It's like, I, I you know, they, they were fine, but they gave a great performance. And, and uh, he spent an hour singing with the Nips that night. It was it was very memorable and it was well done, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, it, doesn't yeah. Say, it, it wasn't necessarily, as you say, it was about the performance um, and the generosity of spirit when it came to, to Shane, was it? Um, rather than, as you say, a, 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 I suppose a different take from uh, the Nips of uh, the, 19, the 1980s. Yeah, I think there was just a, a bit of a, a willingness on, on all parties just to get together and, and to do it for all time's sake. And it was just a bit of fun and, and they wanted to do it and, and, and rekindle the old the old uh, friendships they had. And, and, and they did that, you know, like Shane was 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 calling here regularly um, down the years. I mean, there wasn't a Christmas Eve for about eight in a row that he didn't head for here. And when he'd come here on Christmas Eve, the place would absolutely explode with with joy. It was the real Christmas for everyone to see him here, and and a few songs were sang, and and he just was a, he was a great man to have around the place, you know. Philly, did he talk much about his ties to home and how it influenced him? Oh, sure. Look at I mean, he loved Tipperary. I mean, like I mean, he, he was a Tipperary. Tipperary was all he he ever spoke about. I mean, he spent time, as you know, in the UK, but. In his heart, it was Tipperary the whole way. Mm -hmm. He loved Tipperary Hurland, and he loved Nina and the Nina area and Kearney Commons. I mean, he got a lot of inspiration from from Kearney and, and uh, his people from Kearney, you know, mm -hmm. the Lynches, his mother's people. And um, he loved spending time down in Kearney and, and, and fuck up on and, and, and Nina. Yeah, that, that was... The, he was really at home here. Just... Uh it was magic. Yeah, and very fond tributes being paid there and right around the country tonight, um, Philly. Well, we also spoke with six-time Grammy Award winner Steve Lillywhite, producer of the Pogue's most successful album, If I Should Fall From Grace With God. You know, he was really a true bohemian. And, uh, and I honestly, in my whole life, I've only ever worked with two true bohemians. Yeah. One of them was Keith Richards and one of them was Shane McGowan. He was just, uh, it didn't matter. You know, if he woke up at eight o'clock in the morning, it was purely because that was when he woke up. There was never any, any. you know, he would wake up at midnight sometimes. He would wake up at three in the morning. It, it didn't matter. His his whole world was not, he, he wasn't encompassed by the sort of middle-class things that most of the population have. And, and that was really eye-opening for me to see. You know, I mean, I, I remember the one time he went on the, on the tour bus to start a tour. He did not even... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Have a bag packed. You know, he would just, he literally got on the bus wearing his clothes, you know, and, and didn't think, you know, never thought as long as he had a packet of fags and a bottle of booze with him, he was fine, you know, but, but, you know, but what a great talent. I mean, not not only was he romantic, and his his lyrics were, you know, I mean, just so romantic. He was he was funny, you know, songs like Bottle of Smoke, you know, just just absolutely great turns of phrases, you know, and 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 he invented a new style of music. You know, really, there was nothing before he Worked, did the Pogues. And, you know, there was virtually no electric guitar. That was the great thing about them. You know, they, they, it, 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 it wasn't a rock band, but it had the power and the, and the, and the, and the, um, and the intensity of punk rock. But it was all acoustic instruments, pretty much, you know, electric bass. But other than that, it was, um, it was all acoustic. Yeah, he's a great skill and genius um, as a musician, um, as told by Steve Lillywhite. And of course, he was among the producers on uh, with that, the classic, of course, fairy tale of New yeah. York. Um, Pat, how did uh, Shane come to, to write what would become this instant classic? Because there was a bet there, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. That he couldn't possibly write a Christmas there was a, There's song. a few stories. It was either Elvis Costello or uh, Frank Murray, who was the manager of the Pogues and manager of uh, Lizzie, uh, before, Lizzie before that. And they kind of said, I think... The story about Frank Murray is he played some horrible Christmas song for him and he said, I bet you couldn't do better than that. And uh, Shane, he did obviously do better than that. But it, it, there was a very protracted birth to the song. It took two years, you know, and originally uh, Carter Reardon was, was the duet partner, I think. And then eventually with, with Steve Lillywhite uh, in producing because Steve was married to Kirsty McCall at the time. So he brought the song home and then did that. But I mean, I think as well, it's the performance we should remember as well because there has been some cover versions of it that have been maybe less than successful. And it's also the only Christmas song that you could possibly stand to hear in July. You couldn't really imagine Mariah Carey telling you about what she wanted for Christmas in the middle of summer or something like that. Do you Monday, know are you I mean? OK sharing July with <laughs> Fairytale of New York? Oh, I thought, sorry, I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought it was a Christmas song in Australia. July anyway. belongs to you, of course. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I meant by that. But yeah. it's, 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 an, it's an immortal song, and I think it'll be there. You know, as, as Springsteen said, it'll be there forever when the rest of us are all long gone. You know? Yeah, um, Eleanor, you concur with that. We were um, talking, I suppose, to Richard as well about the, the, the storytelling nature of it and, and the performance in itself. As a performer, um, you know, how did you find him? Oh, he was mesmerising, you know, and very, uh, very compelling. You know, he, he's one of these performers that just drew you in, you know, and you, you were, you started watching and you didn't stop. You wouldn't look at anybody else, you know, you'd just kind of keep your eyes on him the whole time, you know. Um, as again, you know, I started off saying he was interesting. He was so interesting. <laughs> and he was interesting as a performer. Mm -hmm. And just, I just want to go back to Philly, if he's still with us. Uh, just... I, I just want to bring a story, uh, um, if you wouldn't mind bringing to us. You're also an undertaker, Philly Ryan. Tell us about the night that you introduced uh, Shane to your job as a way of getting him to vacate the pub. Yeah, um, Shane was an awful man to come in and had no concept of getting up in the morning. He never thought about that. But I had happened to have a funeral this, this next day 
And I said, how am I going to get Shane out? How am I going to get him home? And you couldn't be uh, rude to him because he was so nice. You just wouldn't be able to be rude to Shane, you know? And uh, I said, says, do you know what, Shane? I said, I have a funeral um, and uh, I need to dress the grave with the green carpets. I said, will you come with me tonight and do it? Now, this is one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And I, I said, if I get him out... And he warmed to the idea. He said, yeah, I'd love to do that. I always wanted to be an undertaker. Oh. <laughs> He'd love, I'd love to do that. I always wanted to be an undertaker. So himself and Shane jumped into my car. I threw a couple of token green mats into it. And down to Terry Glass we went. And we threw a few green co covers over this clay. And uh, Shane was delighted with himself. But if anyone saw us, me and Shane would go and come into the cemetery at two o'clock in the morning with green carpets. We, the guards would have been called, but um, I got him out. He went home happy and I went home happy. I got a bit of sleep that night. <laughs> Billy, thank you for that. Uh, a great way, I think, uh, to, to finish our uh, tribute to Shane McGowan. And last words as well to you, Mundy, um, on, on the person he was and how you will remember him, having only recently seen him, because you were with him um, very recently. You visited him with, with Damien Dempsey. Damien Dempsey, yeah. So me and Damien stayed in touch, and as Shane you know, was getting uh, more ill, uh, we decided to call in to see him a couple of times, and we had these wonderful couple of evenings where we watched Heartbeat, and um, uh, what's your man's name? Poirot, was it? The guy with the moustache yeah. detective series. And... For me, the night I went to see Bruce Springsteen victorious, you have to stay with Shane while I go and get the tickets. And we watched a documentary on Steven Spielberg. I was like, stay, get the tickets. I'm staying with Shane. I don't care. I'm happy I'm staying here. Bruce, goodbye. So, uh, yeah, I'm just with great memories, very simple memories like that. So. All right. OK, well, thank you all so much for bringing your stories of Shane with us tonight. Uh, Shane is survived by his wife, Victoria, his sister, Siobhan, and his father, Morris, and we are thinking of them all tonight and of his wider circle of friends. My thanks to Pat Carty, to Eleanor McAvoy, to Mundy and to Philly Ryan who've joined us. And after the break, one week on, we'll be reflecting on the Dublin riots. Welcome back. Now, a week on from the riots that wreaked havoc on Dublin, we examined the damage that followed and the continuing political storm. But joining me to discuss this further is Fianna Fáil Senator Mary Fitzpatrick, Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Murku, political reporter with the Irish Independent, Gabia Gatavechkia, and former governor of Mountjoy Prison, John Lonigan. You're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Let's talk about this. We did, before we came to air, we had a programme in which we reflected on, on, on the events of a week ago, John. Um, Dublin on fire, um, as it was named. I think it left the city reeling and people utterly shocked. But as someone very familiar with Dublin and the inner city, how do you view events of a week ago? Um, first of all, um, very sad. I mean, the, the initial uh, cause of it was, was horrific. 
And, uh, you know, that, that will shock anybody, no matter where they are in the world. So uh, that was, uh, I suppose, the, the real sad bit. And then the rest of it was, in some ways, almost predictable in the sense that, uh, you know, people have been, uh, first of all, you have this a group of, of very well-organised far-right people who are, mm -hmm. are very active. I think far more active and influential than people imagine and are given recognition to. So on that side, they're well organised and they're able to um, uh, organise people very quickly especially nowadays with technology, which, which is very difficult to counteract. And then uh, I suppose the thing that I was most uh, upset about and concerned about was the, the level of aggression and violence and almost hatred. Uh, and and the, I suppose the main target of that was the Garda Shikana. Mm -hmm. They got, uh, being obviously the representatives of the establishment, uh, I think we haven't, uh, well, politically anyway, I think we haven't uh, analysed it to, to, the, to the extent we should because there, there's lots of issues, uh, you know, behind the, the the, the images on the streets and the, and the filming and all that sort of stuff and the, uh, the pictures we've seen uh, and I think they need to be addressed and I, I th I, I'd be concerned that our only response seems to be to, to attack violence by resorting to more violence. I, I would compliment the Garda Shikana, contrary to what a lot of people uh, would be saying is that they didn't get aggressive and they didn't use violence against violence. Anybody that thinks violence against violence is the answer just are not connected to the real okay, world. So in terms actually of the, of the Garda response and then what we heard from Drew Harris um, yesterday when he spoke of, I suppose, the additional needs, the, the, the wish list, if you like, that he has about tasers and water cannons and, you know, strengthening up the public order unit. Is this the right response in your view? No, I think it's part of the response. I think, I think the guards need uh, support and facilities and, and, and equipment when, as a last resort, they need to do. But it's a very dangerous road to go down if that's the only response. I, I would commend the commissioner earlier on in the week, on the day afterwards, when he said the Garda Shikana have to uphold the law and they have to behave within the law. And, 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 and they did that. And I think they came out of it great winners because I think they have great public support as a result of it. Uh, and the final thing I, I'd say is politically, I get very annoyed when I hear for instance, the Minister for Justice referring to people as scumbags in the door. That, that is unacceptable. Or referring to them as thugs. The Minister should be, should be focusing on the behaviour and condemn the behaviour. And the people who have been violent, they should be brought to justice through the, the normal legal channels and punished accordingly. But we, we must also recognise, and, and, and it's a cry out really for, for all sorts of, of uh, help and, and frustration and anger. And in those communities, especially the inner city, there's an awful lot of anger and resentment and, and feelings of alienation. And unless they're tackled, I'm afraid we'll have many more disturbances. I think what, what John is saying is maybe it, it's likely to create, maybe the use of that language creates an, an us and them scenario mm -hmm. here. Um, Gabby, uh, um, Helen McAtee did, did address this just, you know, um, I suppose a week on in her response to all of this and how she has reacted to it. Um, what did she have to say about, I suppose, her verbal response as much as anything else? Yeah, I think the use of that word scumbags, um, she didn't use it initially at all. It was only using it all uh, yesterday and that was the first time that she had used it and she's saying, look, this paints a picture of how serious I think the situation is and also the actions. Mm. I mean, let's not 
forget what we're talking about here, public transport being smashed up, loose being smashed up, bus being set on fire, you know, guard cars being attacked. I think that's the context that she was using it in, but also the use of the word thugs was picked up um, by Senator Lynn Rowan at the Justice Committee yesterday when Drew Harris was in, the guard commissioner, and she's saying, look, is it helpful to use those words and language does matter? And he was saying, oh, I didn't use it. And she said, well, actually use it in the opening statement. So I think maybe sometimes people might use those words without mm-hmm. even realising. Helen McEntee is, is a Fine Gael justice minister, and that, that is important to say. Fine Gael is supposedly the party of law and order. So they want to be seen to be coming out as strongly as possible against any form of violence. And I think that's why we're seeing words such as thugs, yeah. scumbags being used. But in coming out um, strongly on the violence that we saw, Mary, in the, uh, on the night, um, as mentioned by John there, is there an absence to look uh, at it politically analyse what happened. Absolutely. And I suppose, as John said, you know, there's many elements to this and there's many facets to it. And the primary one is the school initially and the Mm. trauma that that school has experienced and that they have been responded to. They've been responded to. But maybe we haven't talked so much about that. Like we had Drew Harris and it's on guard, the resources and the Mm. response and the law and order. Uh, Helen McEntee very strongly saying, you know, lock him up and mm. all of that. But, I, you know, the analysis around, I guess, what happened, and as you say, referring back to what happened outside the yeah, school yeah. last Thursday lunchtime. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, sadness is, sadness sadness and upset is, is, is the primary and initial feeling that I think everybody in the community has felt. Then anger, anger that this was visited mm. on our community, that it happened in our community, in our city, and, and even not just for those of us living in, in, in Dublin Central and in, in, in the city, I think for the whole capital and for the whole country. And I, I suppose the school needs space, the whole school community needs space and they need support and, and, and they're getting that support. And then when we move on to talk about the violence and the criminality that was mm. visited upon the city, I mean, that's where the discussion, I suppose, in the political space and with the guardie needs the discussion around the response. And absolutely, you know, force is part of it, but the guardie have to be commended mm. for the way they responded. The fire service have to be commended. Yeah. All of the frontline workers, the public but service workers... also politically everybody... the question of preparedness and, you know, could this have been foreseen? And which element of believe, it? Which, I mean, which the, element of it? Well, the viol- if we take the run-up and, and increasingly yeah. violent attacks that we have seen yeah. um, around anti-immigration protests, around far-right protests, what we saw outside um, the door when it returned from the summer recess, mm. all of that, yeah. and how politically prepared we are, uh, as well as from a law and order point yeah. of view. Do you think that there has been some burying the heads in, in sand on this one, Mary? Well, we certainly haven't been burying our, our head in the sand on this one. And I think the fact that the Guardi have public order units in place, the fact that they had additional Guardi public order units that they could ramp up, the fact that there was the, the presence Which of the force, city was out of control uh, last Thursday night. The, 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 the city was um, policed. It, it, was, it was a massive surge of riotous behaviour. It was a massive surge, yeah. okay. un, unprompted and unpredicted, you are right, unpredicted. But it was responded to instantly and there was a constant increasing it, okay. of the response to, to a point of Q. control being established right. and maintained, most importantly maintained. And that's our focus. Our focus is ensuring right. that the city and the capital remain safe. 
Would you concur with that, uh, Rory, um, I, I in would terms concur of with what, regard the response? I, I concur with what you said earlier when you said Dublin City was, was out of control. Look, we, we have to remember the school. We know the huge trauma that, uh, obviously, that a huge amount of children have been through. Obviously, three injured and a childcare worker. And there's still uh, the childcare worker and one of the children in, in still mm. very serious, serious condition. So obviously our, our hearts go absolutely out to them and we hope for some, some good news from what has been absolutely terrible. But so Drew Harris knew, according to himself, at 2.19, uh, he had mm. some sort of conversation with uh, Helen McEntee at 2.49. We were already hearing it in Leinster House that this was somebody who wasn't born in Ireland. That And my first thought was, we have a powder keg that's ready to go off. We know the history we've had in the recent times with these far-right agitators. You knew straight away that they were looking and calling people in. Uh, I accept that when we need to look at a policing response, it's not just policing, it's all the early intervention pieces, it's those added supports. <coughs> okay. But see, when you're dealing with circumstances like this, where you had... Um, real agitators bringing people out on the street, rearing them up, and then others that may have determined, here I have an opportunity to engage there in absolute um, desperate, desperate acts. Okay. There is and a point here to be made, though, and actually, like, I don't think... It's actually a failure. I mean, in fairness, there, we haven't really seen Drew Harris or the Minister for Justice say, this is going to be our response in regards to this issue. And either Sinn Féin have come out and said, really tackle the far right, and really tackle, as you're saying, that anger that is out there in some, however small they may be, communities, mm. you know, that, that push them to go out onto the streets, to smash up guard cars, to set a, a, you know, a bus in a Lewis um, on fire. And in fairness, like politically, we've heard about, well, the guards failed and we need, you know, tasers or whatever. But there hasn't really been this conversation about, like, how do we actually properly clamp down on the far right? And by the way, you know, the far right politically has been rising for, for a number of years now. In Ireland, it's sort of bubbling under the surface and it's come to the fore, I think, very recently, maybe in recent months, more so, especially when we saw that protest outside of Leinster House. But, like, you cannot just say it came out of absolutely nowhere because that's not the case. Yeah, an overdue conversation that needs to be had, uh, John, do you believe, around, uh, I suppose, the growth of the far right and what's maybe sparked a lot of anger? <coughs> the far right are the far right, but... They also, there's a lot of people also very frustrated and uh, with the system. The lack of communication, mm. the lack of consultation. Uh, Hugh, I mean, the, the inner city of Dublin has suffered, uh, you know, for many, many decades. And, and that frustration is always under the surface because, and it has got, Obviously. it has deteriorated over the last number of years rather than improved. Okay. So the, 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 the politicians and the, and the powers that be need to listen right. to the people in those areas because if they don't, this anger okay. will, will, will show itself again. All right, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to all our panellists tonight, but from all of us, good night. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.